Hello and welcome to Related Search Podcast. We're siblings who share ADHD in our search results. Sometimes loosely related, but always literally related. We're sisters. We look up stuff and then we talk about it. And that's basically what this is. Basically what this is. I'm, my name's Kate, uh, and my sister Emma's going to do the episode today. What are, we, what are we talking about? So this might even be a two-part episode, because um, okay. I originally wanted to only talk about Jeremy Bentham's head. Are you familiar with the... Jeremy Bentham's head. No, I did not know anything about this. A head? Like a decapitated head? His actual head is all I wanted to talk about, but then I started looking more into is, who jeremy bentham was is it a famous head like they it's just a very famous a head? head is it this really old or is this like a new thing this is old so olden times hit so it was like a head that was on display somewhere it still currently is yeah it's currently on display well like, i'll why? get into where you can find the head who why where <laughs> I'm going to tell you a lot about Jeremy Bentham. I'm going to tell you about utilitarianism. Okay. We're going to talk about things he invented, stuff that he did, how cool he was. Um, we're going to talk about like religion and what happened to Jeremy Bentham's head. And the rest of his body. Why is it just his head? <laughs> he was born February 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an Aquarius. Mm-hmm. He died in 1832. Okay. So this was quite a long time ago. So he was an English philosopher, social reformist. He knew a lot about laws. Some people think of him as the modern founder of utilitarianism in the 18th century. What does utilitarianism mean? My next question to you was, are you familiar with utilitarianism? (laughs) You're not. For once, I have a thing that you do not know about. (laughs) It's one of those, like, I know the term and I can pick it up on like context clues but i don't think i've ever been like define this properly um i i tell me so a basic explanation of it is if an action one takes is useful or beneficial to a majority then it's right okay epicurus from ancient greece uh 341 to 270 bc and i put that in for you (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so try to figure out when that happened <laughs> uh ancienter ago than the the start of the julian calendar and i put this in because a lot of people are like he's the like uh jeremy bentham is the like creator of utilitarianism like actually epicurus in ancient greece had similar theories and he said that actions should be measured in terms of the happiness or pleasure that they produce Epicurus was actually a really interesting philosopher, in my opinion, because he taught that all basic parts of the world are atoms um, and uncuttable bits of matter that are flying through empty space, which is pretty interesting for ancient Greece. Oh, yeah. No, the fact that they, like, figured out, well, like, the the word atom comes from, from that time. Which I was kind of, like, especially when they started splitting particles up smaller. I'm like, no, we can't go smaller than that. It's <laughs> my brain. So much of, like, I mean, so much of science stuff that you assume must have come later is actually pretty old. I think people think that, like, people were dumber and we've only gotten smarter. But it's like, no, the people have the same capacity for intelligence. Like, people are, are smart. Yeah, it's measured differently. There's dumb dumb people, but there's still also smart people. (laughs) There was still also very dumb people back then. Um, He, Epicurus, had rejected Plato's teachings 
of the mm-hmm. immortal soul. And he said that the gods have no influence on our lives. And, quote, if God knows about our suffering, which is like God's all-knowing, cares about our suffering, which is God's all-loving, and can do something about our suffering, which is God's all-powerful, um, then there shouldn't be any suffering. So he's like, kind Yeah, of... but the Greek gods were all kind of dicks. Like, I think I kind of, like, respected the pantheon of, like, ancient gods because they were assholes. They're like, I don't know, they're all just fucking each other and, like, being assholes. Like, they don't care about us. Definitely they makes I kind sense. of do if you, like, worship them maybe in the right way that they, that particularly particular one wants to be but like they're kind of they don't really care that much about the day-to-day lives of people they don't really give a fuck about us because they're above us it's kind of like the modern day theory about aliens where they're like they don't give a fuck about us and they are so <laughs> much higher above it they're just watching us watching us yeah. do dumb like, shit they'll get involved if they want to but like they don't care about you should. <laughs> there's also someone named emmanuel kant who yes. could do philosophy Oh, right, Kant, good. <laughs> Couldn't. Uh, you're familiar with Immanuel Kant? Uh, yes. He was a German philosopher in the 1700s. He designed his version of moral philosophy as a philosophy of freedom, where if a person couldn't act otherwise, then their act can have no moral worth. He believed that every human has a conscience that makes us aware that the moral law has yes. authority over us. He's a mushy baby. And name those people to kind of not disprove that Jeremy Bentham is the founder of utilitarianism, just that it's been around longer than him and he was influenced by these people. He's fa- he's accredited with a couple of things that he definitely didn't have anything to do with, but he was a huge... He, sh- he helped shape what we now call utilitarianism. Yeah, popularized it. Did he coin the term or was that somebody else at some point? I don't actually know, but... He did invent words, which I will get into soon. So utilitarians agree that these theories and morals should apply to everyone equally, but utilitarians thought that primal desire to seek pleasure and to avoid pain was the only way to apply morals. If you think that sounds difficult to believe, that someone would just be uh, acting in everyone's best interest for their own personal pleasure-seeking, you are definitely not alone on that. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't that kind of just give, like, a free pass to, like, a lot of... Uh, Many people call utilitarianism hedonistic, which would technically be correct because hedonism is just a grouping of theories that center around pleasure seeking and pain avoidance. No, but I think some people see it as indulgent. Yeah, which it gets into Christianity with like sinful behavior and whatever. (laughs) Feel bad. (laughs) So, yeah, but it's not necessarily a bad thing because when we factor in what it looks like to be someone who's in pursuit of happiness and personal pleasure... Um, maybe that person gets personal satisfaction and pleasure from doing charity work or, uh, but when we get back into morals, it just, like the world just does not work that way. Yeah. So utilitarianism is very much like a morality thing, like a a stance, a stance on morality. Kind of. They changed it again a little bit and then again. So yeah, cause I just keep getting overwhelmed with like, well then who defines morality and who like where and then my brain explodes and then I go back in the complete circle again of trying to figure this out but getting back on track with the original explanation um utilitarianism utilitarianism is other regarding like I mentioned earlier utilitarians think that quote we should act always to produce the greatest good for the greatest number and that's known as the principle of utility Mm -hmm. so 
an example that I tried to come up with. It's really dumb. Um, say you and a group of your friends were trying to decide what you wanted to watch on Netflix and you really, for whatever reason, wanted to watch Ghostbusters, but you knew that some of the other people in your group of friends had seen it a million times and that some of them really hated Ghostbusters. So you decide instead to watch The Princess Bride because nobody in that group has seen it, but it's interesting enough that everyone, including yourself, will enjoy it. So that would be your utilitarian choice because it would make everyone in the group the most pleased. And even though you're a little bit less excited to watch The Princess Bride um, than you were to watch Ghostbusters, you've still heard it's a really good movie. Um, yeah, it's kind of choice... like averaging out things for fairness. Yeah. Yeah. Then, like, you are pleased, even if it's a little bit less, but for the greater good, everyone is pleased, as opposed to just you. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I think you think that, like, a lot of governments try to run in a utilitarian way of, like, what needs to be the most efficient and fair way to plan something or do something. Even if it doesn't please everybody, it's at least hitting the, the best average for yeah. everybody. I, like, I like it. No, it seems it seems reasonable. Um, okay, enough about utilitarianism. Now we know all about it. I started learning more about Jeremy Bentham and got so interested because he is so cool. So he's born in in the London area, in Aquarius, February fifteenth, seventeen forty eight. Well, and I wonder from my calendar episode if he was born in seventeen forty eight in London. He probably used both dates. So which one did they convert it? Did what abbreviation did they use? There was like the old old date and new date or something. Oh my god, was it OS? The yeah, the old style and the new style. Okay, so in old style, it was February 4th, 1747. But yeah. in the new style, it was February 15th, 1748. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it was in that weird time period. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, that makes so much more sense now. Yeah, if he was British and born before 1752, their birth dates will be weird. They'll have That's to. really cool. We know this now. <laughs> Why is it like that? For a thing I already talked about. <laughs> it was said that when he was a kid, he would read the multi-volume History of England from his dad's study. His dad was like a lawyer guy. And he studied Latin at the age of three. Did he? <laughs> I think he actually might have, because this guy is berserk. So he learned violin when he was seven years old, and he would perform, perform, perform. He learned violin when he was seven years old, and he would perform. <laughs> perform. Come on, kids. Perform Latin. <laughs> he learned how to play the violin when he was seven, and he would often perform for his parents. Uh, handle pieces when uh, for their dinner parties. Handle. And I'm like, my kid doesn't know how to spell and he's nine. So. <laughs> <laughs> he also played the harpsichord, the piano, and the organ. Really, there's no YouTube back then. Like, if you want your kid say. to learn something, you can, like, fucking make them. No iPads. That was a different time. But there wasn't, like, traditional schools either. It was like you would hire a tutor to, like, teach your kid lessons of stuff that or go to oxford university when you're 12 because that's exactly what he did well he was 12 when his father sent him to the queen's college which is a constituent college of oxford university and he completed his fucking bachelor's three years later in 1763 and a master's degree three years after that in 1766 that's crazy hi i'm a child baby here to, <laughs> to 
Good job, I guess. They had money. Um, his father was a lawyer. Like I said earlier, he was a lawyer guy that did stuff. Um, he was hoping that Jeremy would also follow the law career. And he really wanted him to become Lord Chancellor of England. I didn't even look into what that person does. It just sounds oh, very it's fancy. A it's a it's thing. A th- oh, it's still a thing, yeah. Lord but Chancellor. Yes, Chancellor. A- Chancellor. He did train as a lawyer, but he didn't actually end up practicing law. Throughout his whole school career, he just got more and more frustrated with how (laughs) complex English law was. Since he was 11, he was strongly in favor of the women's suffrage movement, equality between the sexes, and he argued for the right for a woman to obtain a divorce and hold political office, which is pretty big biz for the time and also for a kid that age. So he also argued against laws that prohibited homosexuality. He wrote an essay about sexual nonconformity, and they weren't actually published until the 1930s, which sucks, but I guess they probably would not publish anything like that during the 1700s. Like, no, pass. (laughs) He was really well-respected, though, so I almost wonder if they knew that he had these views and he was writing these things, if he would have gone as far. But anyway, we'll get into more. I think it becomes like a political thing of, like, you can maybe have a persuasive argument, but if people are like, this is just not palatable politically right now, that this goes in a box until later. He didn't think that homosexual acts were unnatural, and he actually wrote an essay um, that, again, wasn't published until way later, but this time way, way, way later, um, in 1978. Um, But he shit all over society against things he considered to be, quote, private offenses. So, like, laws against homosexuality. Yeah, I'm like, why are we why are we involved in this? This doesn't need to My be part of... My own fucking business. Um, he was... Uh, one of the things I'd read about him was that he was really private and hard to get a hold of. <laughs> so some people thought he was autistic because of that. I'm like, no, dude. He's probably just fucking, like, gay and one... Don't come over right now, forever. Just go away. <laughs> so in 1978, the Journal of Homosexuality, that's an actual thing... They published his essay, and it said it was the first known argument for homosexual law reform in England. So did someone, like, in his estate, like, keep all of his work? I believe so. I think pretty much everything he wrote is in the university in London. Okay. Um, I'll get into, I have, like, facts about him. He wrote, like, 20 pages a day of manuscripts. So he had amassed 100,000 pages of manuscripts at one point. Before he died, well, just, I guess, I think, like, even the day he died, he was writing. Yeah, he wrote pamphlets and essays and papers that were published all over and tried to reform laws. and But not the gay ones. <laughs> not the gay ones. Um, he never married. No kids. Because <clears throat> he's gay. <laughs> he did write a lot about um, sex. I think this was, hmm. like, private writings. Um, and a few, like, specifically a few women that he was particularly into um okay so i think he was bisexual but that's just just from everything just speculating yeah so if that is the case i'm sorry you couldn't live authentically during the time you were alive but luckily for us he wasn't afraid to put these things down in writing and speak out so we can have a little glimpse into the past and see that not everyone was a homophobic turd back then yeah i mean maybe he did to some extent i guess probably not openly but no I mean, if he was at least able to, like, write about it and have a job, then that's something, isn't it? He had a lot of views that, like, 
went completely against the norm. Um, so I'm just, I'm so surprised that he was like, is it just because he was rich that he had a lot of people who respected him? I don't know. He was also famous for another idea he had called a panopticon, um, which was a proposal for a prison where guards watched all the inmates from one central guard tower. Um, and in 1793, he got Parliament to actually permit him to build it. But he ended up giving up because he was so frustrated at the lack of progress. He really didn't like the way British law worked. So this is where it started getting weirder. <laughs> he wrote a prison cookbook. Okay. And he called it Jeremy Bentham's Prison Cooking, a collection of utilitarian recipes. So it's like these <laughs> meals that were really high in nutrition, but really low in cost. And he would even have like an itemized list of ingredients and costed them all out how much labor it would cost to produce each dish he had vegetable dishes and meats and pudding and soups and breads jer's gruels it's so weird jeremy bentham's culinary escape <laughs> you can't escape from here but you can escape with your mouths <laughs> he also helped establish britain's first ever police force London Thames River Police in 1800. And it all went downhill from there. Thanks for the police. That's great. Thanks, Thanks Jer. So according to a journalist, George Wheatley, who actually got to stay with Jeremy Bentham for a little bit, um, Jeremy would take a few turns in the garden, to which he called circumgyrating, which George described as trotting or taking upon kind of a trot step so he would do this each morning before breakfast and do some little british tai chi just do a little jig in the garden <laughs> so the one article i was reading it's like jeremy bentham might have been the first ever jogger <laughs> so each morning before breakfast he would go run around his garden a bit <clears throat> but it's just funny because he would call it circumgyrating <laughs> sure he was quirky a proper little, and then you have your bone jelly and you circumgyrate around the garden, and <laughs> that's cute. He was a little weird. He had a walking stick that he used all the time that he used to call Dapple. Um, he named his teapot Dickie. Um, and he had an <laughs> he had an elderly pet cat. <laughs> What's its name? What is its name? The Reverend Sir John Longbourn. Sure. <laughs> He's kind of giving me some William Lyon Mackenzie King vibes. <laughs> like, just a little bit, where it's like, you're eccentric to the point where it's like, what the fuck, did people know about this when you were alive? Or was it just... Oh, yeah, he's the one that um, talked well, yeah, talk to, to his, his mom and some other to dog or something. Lyon Mackenzie King thought, like, his dog was possessed by his dead mom. That was it. Yeah, I knew something about a dog. And yeah, mom. that's the one. Yeah, and he did a lot of weird spiritual. Cult I think stuff. it's like if you're like rich enough, they're like they're just eccentric. But otherwise, you would have been like committed. Like, these people are making laws. If it was a woman, oh my god, she would have been lobotomized immediately. Um, I actually know where he's buried, and I've been to his thing. It's in Cabbage Town at Riverdale Farm. Yeah. Um. Anyway, enough about that. Jeremy Bentham came up with some words that we still use today. He invented the words international. Oh. Maximize okay. and minimize. And also one that we I don't think we use it today, which is scribatory. Scribatory, what does that mean? I don't actually know. 
I thought like maximize and minimize were like, well, they have like Latin Greek bases, don't they? Um, Jeremy Bentham called dibs on a lot of shit. Like utilitarianism was definitely started by Epicurus and... Yeah, maybe like coining and popularizing the usage, but... Yeah, he's he's accredited with inventing these words. Um... And when he's naming shit, like his cane and like circumgyrating and all well, this with stuff. Well, with those ones, I was like, dibbles and uh, Twitter pates or something. I thought it was going to have some like weirder names. <laughs> um, scribatory. I still, I tried to look it up and it's, I can. Well, like, yeah. What's the definition of that? It, I couldn't find one actually. What? Inventing words that doesn't even know the meaning to them. Fake. Um, Scribatory, like, I don't know, scrib would mean, like, something to do with writing. But, So, Jeremy Bentham, uh, another thing about him, it was he was a huge atheist. And one thing that I particularly like, that it was hard to find that he said this, but he described church church teachings as nonsense on stilts, and I really liked that. Um, And he was opposed to Christian burial. And he did not believe in resurrection and soul continuation, and he felt that the church was incredibly corrupt. Uh, one of the finding moments that uh, began his uh, more outspoken atheism was in 1776. He was attending Oxford, and he was forced to subscribe to the 39 Articles of the Church of England, which I am going to post a link to that in the show notes. Um, but he had to do that in order to take his degree. Um, and he thought that uh, Bentham viewed this as being forced to compromise in his intellectual integrity. Um, but he did it to please his father because he thought that if he didn't do it, that he wouldn't be able to graduate and that his dad yeah. would be really just. That it was like a weird formality that doesn't really need to exist, but it's to please the ruling. Morally, he the- disagreed with it. And that seemed to be a huge thing for him. So, uh, by the time he was finishing his career, though, he was advocating to abolish the monarchy and establish a single chamber, which would be annually elected representative instead of the monarchy. I just thought it was interesting that he hated it so much. Well, it is. I mean, I think especially when you're involved with, like, logic that, um, why are we giving them so much power? Why are, why are we doing this? (laughs) Why do I have to say that I believe in God in order to get my university degree? Like, just, can we not? Okay, hi. So I decided that this is going to be part one about Jeremy Bentham. We still have a lot to get into with him. And so part two, I will finally get to the point and talk about this man's goddamn head. I promise. We're going to talk about what an auto icon is and why putting varnish on a corpse's face is probably not a good solution to waterproof it. If I sound weird, I'm recording this later, and I've been pretty sick with COVID. At least I'm pretty sure that's what I got. So uh, that's really sucked, but I hope everyone else is safe. And as always, we thank you so much for listening. Um, The next episode is one of Kate's, and it's going to be about January. So look forward to that. Um, I want to thank RCV Moore for letting us use his music, and also for this episode, I'm going to thank Mozart for this public domain classical music. 
and I chose it to put us into the Bentham 1700s, 1800s mood. So I guess that's it. Okay, see you later, bye.